see the speaker. He is. Ready? He is the person who got me in here. And uh, I've known him for quite a while. And I look forward to hearing his story. My name's Andy, I'm an ACA. Yeah, I think we've known each other since I've lived in Benicia, huh? Like 15 years. Mm -hmm. I'm going to record this so I can send it to my son. Does anybody have an objection to that? Okay. Maybe send it. We'll see how it turns out. Um, welcome, everybody. These two guys have heard extensively my story, and Jim, too. Um, so, Lorraine, I guess I'm talking to you and Ann tonight. Um, I... I Tried, I was a little reluctant to say yes to the share because I feel like I talk all the time in this meeting. And, uh, and I have a rule of not sharing within a year of speaking already at a meeting. And I think it's been like 18 months here. I shared after the first six months, um, which was a year and a half ago, I guess. So anyway, um, I will uh, pass around a book. I want to start with this. This is just some pictures that kind of help to frame the story. Um, the background is my, my qualifier is my dad and his dad and my brothers. Um, on both sides of the family, alcoholism is pretty rampant. I did the family tree exercise in step one and learned a lot more about alcoholism in my family and that it was more way more pervasive than I thought um, that's part of denial right we talk about in this program about the stripping away of denial two things the removal of denial and also unexpressed grief over loss which has occurred you know decades ago but we've never really expressed it so these, these pictures, they're just a couple of pictures. Um, I was born in Montana. This is me trying to ride my big brother's bike. This is another big brother and me. He's reading a story to me. I had a pretty idyllic early, early childhood, I think. Um, this is my dad when he was graduating from high school. And then this is him in the, the mid-70s, I think. Um, he was close to dying. He had a few more years to go, but, but you can see the difference. And then this is us when we got away from dad's alcoholism and moved into literally a shack. Um, and this is me and my little sister. And then finally, this is me also in a tree. You can kind of see, if you look really closely, um, I'm hiding in this tree. And that's kind of symbolic of, my, um, of that time in, in my life. Um... <clears throat> So I'm number eight of 10 kids. Um, the oldest and the youngest have died. The oldest died of alcoholism and complications of a few years ago. And the youngest was born with cere cerebral palsy and she died when she was three from pneumonia. Um, <clears throat> and I was about mm, maybe 10 when she died. Uh, I've had a number of deaths in the family, as you can imagine, uh, and those were always very traumatic and loss-related. Uh, well, for example, when I was probably in the sec first grade, uh, we got a call in the middle of the night. One of my brother-in-laws had been killed in an accident, a car accident in Wyoming. You know, so the house just 
broke out into pandemonium in the middle of the night and I'm, you know, seven years old. <clears throat> so I've never forgotten that moment and to this day I dread late night phone calls. Um, <clears throat> the the trauma that happened as a child was uh, from my dad's alcoholism. There's two parts of it. One is the neglect and and his obsession with alcohol and, and his self-centeredness and the other part is the violence and the you know outburst that happened it was not my some of my memories from you know zero to five are the police coming to the house uh, during dinner time because they needed to speak with my dad about an accident that had occurred with a car very similar to his in town and he was kind of a known entity and they just wanted to you know look at the car and see if there was any uh, accident damage on it and rule him out as a as a participant. And then there were other times when the police came because they were summoned because dad was belligerent and violent. And, um, you know, my older brothers and sisters were sitting on him to keep him down until the cops got there. The phone would get ripped out of the wall on a regular basis so that the police could not be called. This was back in the day when he had lines, of, you know, phone line. Then <clears throat> um, I also remember, um, him fighting with my uh, second oldest brother, Chris. Um, again, usually late at night when he came home and he and Chris were both there, dad would be drunk and Chris would be belligerent or had stolen the family car or, you know, had gotten into trouble for something. And, and he was acting out and dad, you know, felt like he needed to discipline him by violence. Um, as the youngest boy, I was kind of sheltered or shielded from um, that violence directly. I had a buffer between me and my dad of my older siblings, and they took the brunt of it. God bless them. Uh, when I was in the second grade, end of second grade, we moved from Montana to Alaska. And all my older siblings, for the most part, stayed behind. They were graduating high school and getting married and having kids and or not graduating and getting married and or not getting married and having kids there was all kinds of stuff going on <clears throat> or they were marrying alcoholics you know because um one of the traits that we read is that we marry alcoholics become them and that's that's certainly happened in my family as well anyway so we get up to alaska and now i i no longer have this buffer of these older siblings and so i am face to face with with alcoholism in its ugliest form um and and fear is just how i existed you know i was afraid all the time and dad would take us hostage on a regular basis so at this point left at home it was um my brother joe who's a year and a half older than me Myself, my little sister Julie, six years younger than me, and then the baby was in the institution most of the time because she was sick all the time. So, um, you know, he would take us camping, and it was really a drunk fest for him. He just would drink constantly, and we were left to fend for ourselves. And we, our our fun during camping was to find his bottles secreted throughout the camper van and dump them out and fill them up with water because it was vodka. That was his drink. And I don't believe anybody that says, oh, you can't smell vodka. I can smell vodka from a block away. Um, <clears throat> and I, I never drank it, really. I never liked it because it was his drink. And I associate that smell with 
with all of that. So he would also do things like, you know, put us in the car for a drive around the neighborhood at like five miles an hour and we couldn't get out. Um, and this is not traumatic. It's just an example of, you know, his efforts to control and manipulate us for his own purposes. Um, keep us hostage in the car and tell us, you're my best friend and I love you so much. And, you know, just really alcoholic gibberish behavior. Um, and it was all I could do to, you know, not jump out of the car and run down the street while it was still moving. Um, it was, and he would also, you know, drive us around while he was drinking. And he, I remember him telling me before I was even in grade school, turn around and look out the back window. I'm going to drink some root beer. And he'd be in the front chugging his vodka. And I'd go, well, if it's root beer, I should, I get some, right? A&W root beer. We go out to A&W root beer all the time. Can I have some? No, you can't. This is not that kind of root beer. <clears throat> and then another um, memory from that time is, um, you know, one of these nights that the cops had come and carted him away for violence, and the phone was in pieces on the floor in the kitchen. And the next morning, we got up and started packing to go camping up in Whitefish, Montana, which is, you know, like a paradise for camping and fishing and and we were all excited about it but my five-year-old brain was still processing what happened last night what in the hell happened last night the cops came there was all this brouhaha we got swept out the back door out of harm's way and today we're packing to go camping and dad's right there with us and I remember saying to my you know like pulling my mom aside going mom what's going on does you know are we still going camping? And she goes, oh, honey, don't worry about it. Dad doesn't remember anything. So right there, the message was, sweep it under the rug. Tolerate that bullshit behavior. Life goes on, and we live in denial about the, what happened last night. So that was the message, loud and clear, and I got it, and I started to toe the party line. <clears throat> um, and I know... That was a schism. That was a break with me that time in my life where I knew right from wrong and this was not right. And yet the people that I trusted and loved, especially my mom, were telling me, forget about it, move on. <clears throat> so I don't trust authority figures today. Maybe that's why. Um, fast forward a few years, you know, my mom, my mom joined Al-Anon and smartened up and took us out and uh, dad went to work and we all <laughs> split. We Her Al-Anon friend came by in her Rambler station wagon, picked us all up. We literally had like the shirts on our back and took us to a safe house, you know, where dad didn't know where we were. And, <clears throat> you know, there were a few tries of reconciliation after that. My dad went through a couple of rehabs spin drives they're called where you go in for 28 days to a hospital setting get sober and then they put you back out on the street while well, he always relapsed so my family was broken at that time and i remember my mom telling us she sat us down in the family house one time and before this and said i have something to tell you your father and i are getting a divorce and i just busted out in tears i was heartbroken because i loved my dad and i loved our family and yet I knew, I was like, what took you so long, Mom? We need to get the hell out of here, because this is madness. 
and I'm afraid of this man all the time. <clears throat> and he worked nights and he worked days. He worked all these crazy shifts, so you never knew if he was coming or going. You know, that was another thing. Um, or if he was going to be fighting with my brother Chris when he got home. So, uh, again, you know, this schism of I deeply love this man. He's my dad, but on the same, by the same token, I, I can't wait to get away from him and, and you know, not be uh, terrorized by him anymore. Um, so they went their separate ways, and he still was around. He still was in our lives, but he just continued to his his alcoholism. Um, a few years after that, ultimately killed him. He died in his car, uh, just passed out, and um, after a three day bender, and died in his car. You know, and it was a very unlovely um, alcoholic death. Very tragic and very sad. And but by that time, I was a teenager, and I had kind of disconnected with him. I had like treated him with contempt like I don't want anything to do with you I'll tolerate you but you you're not really in my life anymore because of how you behave <clears throat> um, as part of his rehab deals we had to go in and participate in these family group sessions you know so I kind of got a little glimpse of people that had sobriety and that, that were running these meetings and you know there, that it was possible but I never figured, you know, I never, never figured that he would ever get sober, and he never did. Okay, so then uh, I'm in junior high um, a few years before he passed away, and I am introduced to alcohol, and I, you know, take to it like a fly, like a moth to a flame, and it solves all my problems, and it fills that hole inside of me. It was my way of coping with this insanity that was happening. Um, well, alcohol and other forms of alcohol, I'll say. Marijuana, you know, pills of various kinds. Uh, quaaludes. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> Greenies and, and uh, I forget the other ones. Reds. Christmas trees. <laughs> so, you know, I pursued that with a vengeance. Um, and uh, and, it, and it, it helped me to cope with what was happening. And, uh, but then when I was 18, I literally was watching my father die and, and I quit. I just cold turkey, white knuckled, stopped first the booze, no, first the drugs. And then a few months later, the booze. Um, and I was dry for a number of years and my dad died that year and I did not grieve his death. I know today and I know from therapy and counseling that I did not grieve his death. I just went into shutdown mode, and I was I was starting college. I was engaged. Um, you know, I was living in California, and they were in Alaska, so I was pretty much. I felt like I had left that all behind. Um, <clears throat> but I, underneath it, I was really sad and really angry, and really angry that I'd been shortchanged by this man. He was 53 when he died, which is younger than I am today. I'm 55. So he died two years ago in my, you know, age, chronology. Um, I had a succession of relationships uh, in which I married an alcoholic or married a version, a female version of my dad or became involved with, in an intimate relationship with a female version of my dad. And after one of those, I'll hurry up and get recovered here. After, after one of those 
four years and change ago, I um, had a moment of clarity because here's what really happened is I was writing an amends to this woman because our relationship went sideways. Um, and I won't go into why, but she was a relapsing alcoholic and I was a raging codependent. So you can do the math. But anyway, I was writing an amends to her and I was flipping through some papers on my desk and I came across another amends that I had written to another woman and it was almost verbatim, word for word, the same damn amends. And I thought to myself, I'm repeating a pattern here that I am completely unconscious about and it's killing me. You know, I went through a physical withdrawal from that person like nothing I've ever gone through with drugs or alcohol. That was a more intense, painful, physically painful withdrawal than anything else. And, it, and I, was, I didn't know what the hell was happening, but I read about it in a book that we get an obsession with a person and then when we are not with them, then we have a physical with, withdrawal, and I really did. So anyway, um, I had heard about ACA. I went to ACOA in 2001 when I was first getting sober um, and I didn't stick around. I wasn't ready for it. I hadn't even hardly gotten sober yet. I needed to work the other steps first and, you know, get some manageability back in my life. Um, but this time the emotional bottom was sufficient to bring me back to ACA. And for the first two years of ACA, um, I went to four meetings a week. I went to the Sunday night Alamo, which is now Danville. I went to Monday night Concord Red Book Study. I went to Tuesday Berkeley Red Book Study. I went to Wednesday Walnut Creek Yellow Book Study. And then I went to the other programs on the other days. So I was in a meeting seven days a week because I wanted the recovery um, and I wanted the pain to stop. So a couple of months in, I found a sponsor and we started working the steps out of the yellow book. Um, he had worked the ACA steps and I heard him speak and that's when I asked him to be my sponsor. And I had to chase him around for a couple of months because he wasn't really sure if I was ready. But eventually we did meet for a cut. It took me about a year and a half to do the steps. I thought I'd come in, bang them out and be done. No, it doesn't work that way here. He said to me, and I think this is pretty apt, that AA is like high school, Alan on his college, and ACA is doctoral degree, post-grad study. And I, I feel that's true. The depth that we go to in doing the steps here is so far beyond what I did in any Alan on or AA fourth step. So, um, you know, today my life is... Um, is dramatically different than it was. I haven't gotten involved in any more of those kind of relationships where I repeat the same pattern over and over. I'm aware of it. Um, and I can acknowledge it and see it coming and, and not engage in it. And, and that's just one aspect of, you know, the recovery. The promises that we read at the end of the meeting, I can't think of them all off the top of my head, but... Um, is that them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, we will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. I didn't know what self-care was before I got here. I never took care of myself. Um, and it's, it's a new word in my vocabulary today. Um, giving myself approval was not, also, was not something that I ever learned from my parents. You know, 
fear of authority figures. I'm still afraid of authority figures, but at least I can bring myself to uh, the dialogue or the interaction with them. I'm not going to just turn around, turn tail, and run. And 99 times out of 100, that person looks at me like I'm an authority figure, you know, and so my fear is just completely misplaced. Um, ability to share intimacy will grow inside us. That's true here, too. Um, you guys know more about me than my biological family does, probably. So I won't go through all of them, but what I can say is, you know, healthy boundaries and limits will become easier for us to set. That's, that was, that's, whew, a big one. I had no boundaries when I got here. You know, and I've talked about this. My mom died back in March, and um, she made me the executor or trustee of her trust. And not that she had any significant wealth or anything, but my, you know, it's the youngest, younger set trying to tell the older ones how it's going to go down. And they didn't really like that at first, and I had to kind of set them straight at least once. And they've totally fallen in line now. Um, but that was really hard for me. That took an emotional, it drained me emotionally to have to stand up to them and say, you know what, it's not going to go that way. Mom put it this way in her trust, and my job is to carry that out. So that's how it's going to go. And if you don't like it, you can fire me. But sorry, you know. And, and, and I was able to do that, and it took a lot of strength and courage on my part, I felt. But I did it, and it turned out okay. And, and you know, they still love me. We're not enemies or anything. Um, with help from our ACA support group, we will slowly release our dysfunctional behaviors. So that's been critical. You know, having groups um, to go to has been... I can't do it alone. I cannot recover by myself. I have to hear what you guys have to say. I have to hear your experience. And, and hear your sharing about what's happening with you and how you're approaching life now in a new way to get the hope and inspiration to do that in my to apply that in my own life. Um, <clears throat> so I'm I'm profoundly grateful, you know, for for that. We have a meeting in Benicia now, which we didn't four years ago. We have an inner group now, which puts on events and brings us literature, um, which we didn't have four years ago. There's 23 meetings now in the inner group. And there were like a handful, you know, when I started. So ACA is growing, and um, and I'm I'm just profoundly grateful and humbled and delighted that we have it in Benicia. Um, so uh, I don't know what else to say, you know, other than you know, if you haven't worked the steps yet, grab somebody and work it with them. We have a sponsorship dynamic here where you can work with somebody instead of having like a top-down sponsor because nobody likes authority figures in here i don't want anybody telling me what to do um <clears throat> so it's a much kinder and gentler pro program than the other 12 steps that i've been in you know this meeting as a safe space every every aca meeting every convention as a safe space doesn't exist in the outside world so i cherish this i really you know i look forward to it every week Anyway, I probably talked too long, so I'm going to be quiet and let you guys share. Thanks.